0: and welcome backwards we are gonna jump right into chapter 11 the cosmic vision of the Bhagavad Gita Arjuna says graciously Lord you have spoken about the ultimate secret revealed when one knows the self and your words have cleared up my confusion you have told me in detail the origin and dissolution of all things and have described your own vast imperishable being. I do not doubt that you are what you say you are, Lord, and yet I want to see for myself the splendor of your ultimate form. If you think I am strong enough, worthy enough to endure it, grant me now, Lord, a vision of your vast imperishable self. The blessed Lord Krishna says, Look, Arjuna, Thousands, millions of my divine forms, beings of all kinds and sizes, of every color and shape. Look, the sun gods, the gods of fire, dawn, sky, wind, storm, wonders that no mortal has ever beheld. Look, look, Arjuna. The whole universe, all things, animate or inanimate, are gathered here. Look, enfolded inside my infinite body. But since you are not able to see me with mortal eyes i will grant you divine sight look look the depths of my power after he had spoken these words krishna the great lord of yoga revealed to arjuna his majestic transcendent limitless form with innumerable mouths and eyes faces too marvelous to stare at dazzling ornaments innumerable weapons uplifted flaming crowned with fire wrapped in pure light with celestial fragrance He stood forth as the infinite God, composed of all wonders. If a thousand suns were to rise and stand in the noon sky blazing, such brilliance would be like the fierce brilliance of that mighty self. Arjuna saw the whole universe enfolded with its countless billions of life-forms gathered together in the body of the God of Gods, trembling with awe. His blood chilled, the hair standing up on his flesh. He bowed and, joining his palms, spoke these words to the Lord. Arjuna says, I see all gods in your body and multitude of beings, Lord, and Brahma on his lotus throne, and the seers and shining angels. I see you everywhere with billions of arms, eyes, bellies, faces, without end, middle, or beginning. Your body, the whole universe, Lord crowned bearing mace and disgust you dazzle my visions blazing in the measureless massive sun flame splendor of your radiant form you are the deathless the utmost goal of all knowledge the world's base the guardian of the eternal law the primordial person i see you beginningless endless infinite in power with a billion arms the sun and moon your eyeballs the flames of your mouth lighting the whole universe with splendor you alone fill all space and the three worlds shudder when they see you astounding terrifying form multitudes of gods approach you palms joined in dread and wonder multitudes of sages chant to you hymns of deep adoration The storm gods, the gods of light, of sky, dawn, and wind, the angels, the saints, the demigods and demons, all gaze at you in amazement. Your stupendous form, your billions of eyes, limbs, bellies, mouths, dreadful fangs, seeing them, the worlds tremble, and so do I. As you touch the sky, many-hued, gape-mouthed, your eyes blazing, my innards tremble, my breath stops, my bones turn to jelly. Seeing your billion-fanged mouths blaze like the fires of doomsday, I faint, I stagger, I despair. Have mercy on me, Lord Vishnu. All Tiraratrasya's men and all these multitudes of kings, Bhishma, Drona, Karna, with all our warriors behind them, are rushing headlong into your hideous, gaping, knife-fang jaws. I see them with skulls crushed, their raw flesh stuck to your teeth. As the rivers and many torrents rush toward the ocean, all these warriors are pouring down into your blazing mouths. As moths rush into a flame and are burned in an instant, all beings plunge down your gullet and are instantly consumed. You gulp down worlds, everywhere swallowing them in your flames and your rays, Lord Vishnu. Fill all the universe with dreadful brilliance. Who are you in this terrifying form? Have mercy, Lord. Grant me even a glimmer of my understanding to prop up my staggering mind. (laughs) I enjoy reading this passage. One of the most famous passages of the Bhagavad Gita. This idea, rushing headlong into your hideous, gaping knife-fang jaws, I see them with skulls crushed, their raw flesh stuck to your teeth. (laughs) This is a depiction of the reality of life that we're all facing on some level. As I was talking on the last podcast about cats and penguins doing decrepit things to others, that too is a part of god the entire thing and as we were talking in the first podcast about the situation right victor frankel found himself in and auschwitz and millions of other people being tossed into their uh to their doom tortured and so on this is a aspect of god is what Krishna is conveying here to Arjuna. And it is horrifying. It is terrifying. It is unfathomable. Yet it is a part of God. It is a part of life. It is not incongruent with divinity. We're not condoning these things from a humanistic perspective. We're simply... Coming to terms and grappling with the fact that there is horrific, monstrous atrocity and terrifying things that exist all through life. From down to the microbial level. Ebola could be a good example. To the animal level. I mean, obviously, this just sounds like a terrifying animal. Cobras and lions and tigers plants with the Venus flytrap to human behavior and then as the as we were talking about the Tibetan Tonka paintings they have the gods there's two sections where they are fighting each other even in the heavenly mystical realms there is war you can think about a lot of how traditional shamanic cultures talk about you know war in the spirit world and that kind of thing so this conflict and violence and disturbing reality is an aspect of the universe. And to me, I like to use the universe, life, and God as interchanging words. Krishna provides an explanation as to what he is and what this, what is happening to Arjuna, who has obviously opened Pandora's box of revelation that he wishes he did not. The Blessed Lord says, I am death, shatterer of worlds, annihilating all things. With or without you, these warriors and their facing armies will die. Therefore, stand up, win glory, conquer their enemy, rule. Already I have struck them down, you are just my instrument, Arjuna. Drona, Bhishma, Jaihadratha, Karna, and the other great heroes have already been killed by me. Fight without hesitation and kill them. <laughs> it's such an interesting passage to find that in, you know, what is a cornerstone of a, a yogic text. Fight them without hesitation and kill them. Fascinating. I am death, shatter of worlds. With or without you... Death is inevitable. Therefore, stand up and conquer the enemy. It's interesting because as I read this, it's difficult to on some way frame it solely as an internal struggle, and on some level, and also from what I recall reading the author's or translator's commentary, Stephen Mitchell's at the end of this book, he talks about it like there is kind of this interesting ambivalence that occurs here where we're not totally sure that this applies solely to just an internal thing this might also on some level be a mythological spiritual justification or grappling with violence and war in the world and this is kind of what I was talking about with the uh, Lakota and the Native American culture where to go out and do raids on other tribes was an accepted part of like becoming a man in the community and you would kill other, uh, other tribe warriors and that was like part of the process is that you would go out and commit violence. At the same time, it wasn't really necessarily like an arbitrary thing. It was part of like, it was supported by like a mythos and there was an ethos to it, meaning it wasn't just like random acts of violence. There was a code of conduct within that. And it was accepted as a necessary part of the spiritual mythology of the native cultures. And on some level, I kind of feel that this is sort of also touching on that here and i could be very much wrong about it but from what i recall reading in the commentary it's a little like they kind of are saying like yeah if you are born into the caste where you have become a warrior that is your fate accept your fate and participate in it and your participation without attachment to the outcome is your redemption there so you're not doing it because of selfish reasons you're doing it because of the entire society of the caste system is founded on this these yogic principles and of evolution towards krishna consciousness and your action is your duty is a necessity for the for the entirety support of the whole social structure which is moving all souls towards enlightenment in respect to where each one is at on the path so it's kind of like that's what he was saying Like I, in the beginning Krishna going and saying I'm moving dharma I come to this world when things are becoming stagnant and I have to move the wheel of dharma Of you know bringing forth the teachings so that people go forth and act upon their duty but they do so without attachment and with awareness and wisdom so that no matter what they do they can still come to me So it's interesting because he's saying this is an inevitable thing. Uh, I have already struck them down. You are just my instrument. And I think that we can take this simply as... Maybe it is just an inner fight, but there's something about the way this reads to me that feels like it is also providing justification for the way that a culture functions with having warrior caste system. Having heard Krishna's speech, Arjuna, his palms joined, shivering with terror, bows to the Lord deeply and stammers these words. Now I know why the universe delights and rejoices in you. Terrified, the demons scatter before you and sages bow why should they not bow eternal creator infinite lord you are both being and non-being and what is beyond them both the primal god the primordial person the ultimate place of the universe the knower and the known the presence that fills all things And even as i just read that myself i find that that kind of is a good uh reminder he's saying oh right okay there is a monstrosity happening but if you are able to connect into the transcendental plane that is very much involved enmeshed not removed from that atrocity whatever the atrocity is whether it's families killing each other or genocide or anything you know arguments amongst family whatever it is if you can come into the dimension of eternity and timelessness that is within then you can connect to where it is leela the hindu word for divine play where as they say right these are all just masks of god these are all just it's as ramdas says it's god and drag so it's a play it's just a play that's it it's it, it's a story right it's just a story it's a movie step back arjuna this is just a story none of this is real yet yeah. you have to participate in it and you're going to feel it <laughs> <laughs> but I think this is the revelation, right? Saying, how can we, how can you come into that place, the primal God, the primordial person, the ultimate place of the universe, the knower and the known, the presence that fills all things, connecting to that presence where it's just almost like this horrific combat and conflict and atrocity is really just like waves crashing on the surface of the ocean. And he's saying, come down to the depths where. Yes, that is happening, but there's so much more, and what's and the water isn't going anywhere just because the waves are crashing. It's just waves crashing. We don't need to cry because a wave is crashing. We don't need to prevent the wave from crashing. It's already going to crash. The ocean is making the wave crash. You are participating as a wave. Yes, crash. And by crashing, you send out a ripple that makes other waves also crash, and... You feel responsible and guilty and, and horrified, but really, this is just the movement of the ocean as a whole. This has nothing to do with you. So just get out there and, and do the thing, because you know what you actually are, and that this whole thing—it's fine. All the water is here, and at the end of the day, what happens to the wave? That's super sad that it's crashing. It just comes back to me. So I like how they—I perv- like how the text is where. It, it reminds us what's happening at least for me that's what arose arjuna continues you are wind death fire the moon the lord of life the great ancestor of all things a thousand times i bow in front of you lord again and again i bow to you from all sides in every direction majesty infinite and in power you pervade no you are all things If, thinking you are human, I ever touched you or patted your back or called you dear fellow or friend through negligence or affection or greeted you with disrespect thoughtlessly while we were playing or resting, alone or in public, I beg for you to forgive me, immeasurable God, great father of the world, teacher, sustainer, goal of all revenants, unique and peerless, lord of unthinkable splendor. Therefore, most sincerely, I beg your pardon. As a father forgives his son, a friend his dear friend, lover his beloved, forgive me. Having seen what no mortal has seen, I am joyful, yet I quiver with dread. Show me your other form, please, the one that I know. Have mercy. Let me see you as you were before, crowned, bearing mace and discus. With only four arms, O billion-armed lord of infinite forms. (laughs) I like that. Please come back to where you only had four arms. (laughs) The Blessed Lord says, Graciously, for your sake, Arjuna, I showed you my highest form, dazzling, infinite, primal, which no one has seen but you. And this idea, right, of, of coming into this this state of consciousness where all is revealed and there's an explosion. And while we seek a catharsis, oftentimes, you know, apocalypse meaning revelation what do they say? The truth should always disturb us, as Pema Chodron said. The truth should disturb us. The truth is insulting. <laughs> That's another one that Chognam Pema Chodron's teacher says. It's insulting. It should disturb us. And you can't look away. It is... One of those things, right? Like they... Uh why people say ignorance is bliss but at the same time no of course not ignorance is not bliss so not by worship or study or alms or ascetic practice can i be seen in this form by anyone but you arjuna that's an interesting statement I'm trying to understand a little bit why that was said. Because not by worship or study or alms or ascetic practice can I be seen in this form. So he's suggesting that this is something very particular to Arjuna. Yet Arjuna being metaphorically all of us, I would presume, and don't quite have an answer for that because one would think that through like tremendous fasting drinking your soma doing crazy yoga uh with a teaching and a teacher and tremendous worship and ritual and powerful medicine whatever situation you find you in that you could come to some state of consciousness of divine revelation but he's saying no this is not something that can be attained this is just something that can be seen only by Arjuna. So, here's a part that I I don't really have an answer for what that means, but I find that to be a very interesting section. Do not be frightened or confused at seeing my horrific form. Free of fear, lighthearted, see me as I was before. Having spoken thus to Arjuna, the Lord stood before him again, in the mild and pleasant form of Krishna, the kind, the beautiful. Arjuna said... Seeing your human form, Krishna, I feel at ease. Once more, I am myself, and my mind has regained its composure. The blessed Lord said, The vision that you have been granted is difficult to attain. Even the gods are always longing to behold me like this. And once again, he says this, Not by study or rites or alms of ascetic practice can I be seen in this cosmic form, as you have just seen me. Aha, here comes the answer. Okay. Only by single-minded devotion can I be known as I truly am Arjuna. Can I be seen and entered. He who acts for my sake, loving me, free of attachment with benevolence toward all beings, will come to me in the end. So this is a very interesting shift. He who acts for my sake, loving me, free of attachment With benevolence towards all beings. It's such a fascinating dichotomy there. okay. Go out, fight, kill them. (laughs) But with benevolence towards all beings, you will come to me in the end. Such an interesting teaching. It almost feels like there's two different people writing here. Or there's two different teachings for two different people depending on the state of consciousness of each person. If you're stuck as a warrior, go out and fight. But if you are a little more refined and you can perhaps read between the lines, which we're trying to do here, maybe we can come to a place where you're understanding that compassion towards all beings is really the process to come to me in the end. And so I think that's kind of what's being expressed here. He's saying it's not through selfish, uh, almost mission-oriented practice. Like I will do all the yoga. <laughs> I, I, me, I will do all the yoga. My, our, the emphasis on yoga is that it's not a physical practice. And people going to these extreme lengths within themselves, so focused on themselves to enter into this state to find the cosmic form of Krishna and he's saying no that's not what the is going to activate it and what I'm sensing here from what he's saying is that because if you are so self-obsessed you will not be able to rise above and one can think literally of perhaps the chakra system of the Hindu spiritual system right where, because you're so focused on energetic centers that are involved in self that amplify a state of being and awareness of self that you can literally not rise to a higher energetic center which requires deep compassion of the heart to turn that wheel to move the energy to a higher center. Chapter 12. The Yoga of Devotion. Arjuna says, One man loves you with pure devotion. Another man loves the unmanifest. Which of these two understands yoga more deeply? The Blessed Lord says, Those who love and revere me with unwavering faith, always centering their minds on me, they are the most perfect in yoga. So, Inner attitude, inner mindset are our focal points here according to krishna but those who revere the imperishable the unsayable the unmanifest the all-present the inconceivable the exalted the unchanging the eternal mastering their senses acting at all times with equanimity rejoicing in the welfare of all beings they too will reach me at last but their path is much more arduous because For embodied beings the unmanifest is obscure and difficult to attain those who love and revere me who surrender all actions to me who meditate upon me with undistracted attention whose minds have entered my being i come to them all arjuna and quickly rescue them from the ocean of death and birth so advocating a path of bhakti yoga of devotion and not necessarily getting sucked into the mystical and the mysterious but just a state of devotion, praise, rejoice, joy in a humanistic heart-centered place the mystical path, as he says, is effective but it's much more arduous so what we're getting here is that revelation and renunciation and seeking divinity is really an inner state of at, inner attitude and an inner state and that we do not need to rena- renounce externally so much as we do need to renounce internally our own clinging to self and coming into a place of love devotion concentrate every thought on me alone with a one with a mind fully absorbed one pointed you will live within me forever if you find that you are unable to center your thoughts on me strengthen your mind by the steady practice of concentration if this is beyond your powers dedicate yourself to me performing all actions for my sake you will surely achieve success and to go back to this idea If you find that you are unable unable to center your thoughts on me, strengthen your mind by the steady practice of concentration. A lot of people, I think, who come to meditation expect or feel that meditation is a training to become mentally quiet. And I butchered a Muji quote in the previous podcast on this series on the Gita. And I believe it actually went something more like trying to stop thoughts is like putting up a kite and asking it to stop the wind and so while breath work ramana maharashi talked about as it was an effective strategy he said that ultimately coming into the heart through following the question of who am i was really the only thing that worked in a permanent sense that was his experience i have sat and meditated for many hours saying who am i and i've had things happen but nothing that i can say has been a permanent state of revelation but i think it's a important thing on the path to recognize that trying to control the mind is from what muji is expressing is ultimately a, a futile endeavor and it's more about what i what i derive from that quote is it's about being able to step outside of it allowing it to be as it is but not being governed by it Nonetheless, you can strengthen your mind by practice of concentration. Pranayama, mantra, vipassana, yoga, hatha-yoga-asana, many things. But ultimately, we keep coming back to a chaotic stream of thoughts. And this is why he says here, If this is beyond your powers, dedicate yourself to me, performing all actions for my sake. You will surely achieve success. So, I was listening to a podcast on neuroscience yesterday and it turns out that the amygdala the part of the brain that is in control in a lot of ways of fear and stress it is suppressed when you are in an active state of moving forward taking action forward movement it suppresses that part and allows you to be in a more open and creative expansive place which is in a lot of ways why albert einstein said going for a walk was one of his most powerful practices and in tapping into creative imaginative places within the mind and why are uh, in military training the focus is in this kind of direction obviously not through necessarily a uh, imaginative creative compassionate focus point but there's something to this about what Krishna is saying, what the military is saying, what Albert Einstein is saying, and what Hatha Yoga Asana is saying, what martial arts is saying, is that movement, and neuroscience is all saying this, it's calming and suppressing an aspect of the brain and the mind and the consciousness that uh, amplifies self, and self being essentially, well, you could say ego stands for edging God out. And how do you do that? Through fear, through aversion, through craving. And we're finding out through neuroscience that there's literally an aspect of the brain that can be suppressed and a calmness can come in instead. Krishna says, even if this is beyond you, rely on my basic teaching. Act always without attachment, surrendering your actions, fruits. Knowledge is better than practice. Meditation is better than knowledge. And best of all, surrender, which soon brings peace. So act always without attachment, surrendering your actions, fruits. So pain and pleasure are inextricably linked, right? And I was listening to neuroscience yesterday, so I'm coming to that now. <laughs> uh, the dopamine, you know, which is has to do with motivation and pleasure. That's the neurotransmitter, right, of primarily motivation, movement, and pleasure. But it dictates our actions and how we go forth and decide to do things, and we're driven by it. But if we become obsessed with the experience of the dopamine, it's ultimately a painful road we are taking because the what happens is we experience a rush of pleasure and ah, that place but then we it subsides and it crashes below our normal baseline of balance and then we experience an inverse equality of pain and the more intensely we seek it the more intensely the pain comes so one of the tricks of mastering this circuitry of the brain put forth by Krishna and the Buddha in different terminology is to not be governed by expectation or the outcome or a focal point on reward but to be more oriented towards each little individual step and take nourishment of that and to find uh, nourishment in the work that itself will allow us to overcome this pain and pleasure cycle and death rebirth samsara the endless wheel cycles of consciousness that we find ourselves in and i like this idea right of samsara and the wheel i was talking about the tibetan tanka painting and cycles of birth of death of also just being just metaphors for the states of consciousness that we find ourselves in not negating their mystical state that like we're literally dying and being reborn in different forms but also that daily we go through different death and rebirth of states of consciousness and through life there's different stages that we go through that are feel even more visceral than what we go through in a day and that this teaching of not being attached to the outcome is the the raft that will take you to the shore of the of the other side and it's a it's a funny, story another coming back to joseph campbell where he's talking about different uh stages of buddhism different schools right you have theravada little vehicle also known as hinayana then you have the larger vehicle mahayana buddhism and then you have the lightning path of adriyanic buddhism and the little vehicle is like i am going to do the work and sit in meditation and fasting and prayer and mantra and asceticism within reason because it's buddhism it's middle way and I will find revelation, and then another school comes around and says Mahayana. No, 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 the greater vehicle. It's greater because it's going to be more encompassing to others, so it's taking the route of compassion. And this is very much more. I think you'll find in like Tibetan schools, while well. Hinayana and Theravada, you find more. I've, my limited knowledge of this would be more like Southeast Asia and places along those lines, and the Tibetan practice of you know compassion, compassion. Think about others first. We only get out when everyone else gets out with us and I take the bodhisattva vow to remain in this world in service of this Dharma to help bring forth this state of consciousness and revelation for all beings until everything is out even those in the hell realms and the hungry ghost realms and then the vajrayanic path of saying okay well maybe there's a trick Not, and that's a bad way to put it. Maybe there's a a a way to awaken higher centers of consciousness where we can. It won't take many lifetimes as the other two traditions. This is going to happen now, and it's very dangerous and it's very powerful and it moves fast. And to me, this is very much like the path of the Kundalini. This is the path that leads to that revelation of Krishna as the destroyer of worlds, and many methods for that. Right all kinds of things i mentioned previously mike crowley who has a book hidden uh, psychedelics of buddhism or something along those lines where he's talking about that soma and psychedelics were very much a an art to this present day an aspect of tibetan buddhism but it's kept very secret for the power of it and wanting to protect the ritual surrounding it and what it can offer so the story that joseph campbell says is to explain this a little bit because this is the reason i'm going into this This is very much what krishna is, is trying to explain to arjuna here and and i like joseph campbell's uh story about it he says it's like you're in new York or you're new you're in new york city and you heard about this amazing place new jersey i used to live in new jersey for 10 years when i was growing up uh it i certainly wouldn't think of new jersey as the promised land but nonetheless it's like you're in brooklyn and you said i heard about new jersey how do i get there that is the promised land new york city being our ordinary consciousness the hinayana man comes up and says get on the boat you get on the boat and you he's like okay uh st- no i'm, I'm messing the story up i'm gonna go back what happens is you get your own boat and you start to paddle to new jersey you can't see it but you know it's that direction so you're paddling and you're paddling and you're just like lifetimes of paddling you're like i need to expedite this process it's taking a long time and all of a sudden you you hear a thud like a boom and you realize you hit another boat and you see that there are many other people also taking this pilgrimage on a vessel to new jersey so you hot hi- and the ferryman says come and get in the boat with us we'll get there faster together But in order to do it, we all have to work for each other and care for each other and support one another. And if everyone's in their own individual boat, we'll never make it to New Jersey. So we all got to paddle together. And if someone falls down, you got to pick them up and paddle, help them paddle while you paddle for yourself too. So you're taking on more energy and responsibility than if you were just by yourself and it's very stressful you get pissed off at people people aren't doing their job they're slacking off someone else is working too hard you're the one who's working too hard then you realize you're not really working that hard and there's a lot of other people who are working way harder than you and you're kind of the one that's slacking off and the boat just feels like it's just going in circles in a lot of ways and and you're starting to wonder does this make any sense but you're remembering okay I have to have compassion for people. So you just keep rolling with it and you're starting to kind of lose attachment to getting there because you're just, okay, we're together. We're working together. We're figuring it out, but you still like, what is New Jersey? You Every now and then maybe you see like a little glimpse of something and you're like, oh, is that New Jersey? I don't know. And you're looking everywhere and then... All of a sudden, you hit another boat. And this is the lightning path. They say, step in. We're going to get there today. You're like, thank God. How many lifetimes have I been doing this for? And then you hop into the boat. You get there. And they say, look. And you look up. And all of a sudden, you're at New Jersey. But then you get out. And you see that... New Jersey is actually completely connected to New York City. And it's not really like a separate landmass or a separate country or some faraway land The fog clear that had been preventing you from getting from one side to the other, and you're like, oh, okay. (laughs) This has been here the whole time. And then you simply just choose to walk across a GW bridge and you you go get... uh, Some falafel and you go get one of those bagels at Tompkins Square Park, go see a concert, and you go back to New Jersey and you know you're kind of just going back and forth and it's like, yeah, okay, I'm a commuter now. It's cool. So I took some liberties with that one, but the premise being that like if we're seeking this mystical faraway place, it will never show up. But if we can as Krishna says, surrender. You know, because first there's meditation. We're paddling in the boat on our own. He says, Meditation okay, so knowledge is better than practice. Meditation is better than knowledge. And best of all is surrender which soon brings peace. So in the final stage in the Vajrayanic path, we are somehow brought into a state of surrender by the overwhelming circumstances of our path and our work. And the futileness of it and the frustrations, but at the same time, the overwhelming experience of life leading us to a revelation, find peace, but then simultaneously realizing that thing was been there the whole time. (laughs) It wasn't like New Jersey was some faraway place, it was literally just right there, and I could have just walked across the bridge. So I'm still trying to figure this out. Krishna continues. He who has let go of hatred, who treats all beings with kindness and compassion, who is always serene, unmoved by pain or pleasure. Free of the I and mind, self-controlled, firm, and patient. His whole mind is focused on me. That man is the one I love the best. So unmoved by pain or pleasure. And that's so much of this understanding of how dopamine affects our mindset and our behavior and our motivations and our addictive tendencies is that we don't want pain and we seek pleasure. And that's a fundamental thing about human beings. And if we can learn to discipline simply that meditation of seeking pain, avoiding pain and seeking pleasure, if we can embrace what's painful and moderate what's pleasurable and specifically our inner aversion towards the pain and our inner craving towards the pleasure if it comes, great, okay, I have it, that's nice but not miserable or obsessive about it and focus more on this state of love right and patience and firmness and that also being connected highly with the serotonin systems of the brain which has to do so much with gratitude for what's just here and now appreciation so he who neither disturbs the world nor is disturbed by it who is free of all joy fear envy that is the one i love best free of all joy fear and envy i think we can understand being free from fear and envy but to be free from joy the way i'm interpreting that is to be free from excitement and i kind of feel like that's a sense there's something in the Tao Tai Ching where he's, they say everyone is at a parade. Everyone everyone looks like they're at a parade. And I cannot remember the rest of it, but like I, it says, I alone do not care. <laughs> this kind of thing. It's verse 20 in the Tao Tai Ching. I can't recall the specifics of it. It's one of the more funny ones. It says, Everyone acts like they are a parade, I alone do not care. So I think what we're getting out here is more a state of like excessiveness, of happiness, to the point where it's become it's your cup is overfilling and it's spilling and there's imbalance. That's the only way I can interpret that because to me in Bhakti, when I see the Hare Krishna's in Union Square, they're extremely joyful he who is pure impartial skilled unworried calm selfless in all undertakings that man is the one i love best he who devoted to me is beyond joy and hatred grief and desire good and bad fortune that man is the one i love best the same to both friend and foe the same in disgrace or honor suffering or joy untroubled indifferent to praise and blame quiet filled with devotion content with whatever happens at home wherever he is that man is the one i love best those who realize the essence of duty who trust me completely and surrender their lives to me i love them with very great love Chapter 13, The Field and Its Knower Arjuna said, What are nature and self? What are the field and its knower? Knowledge and the object of knowledge. Teach me about them, Krishna. The blessed Lord said, The body is called the field, Arjuna. The one who watches it, whatever happens within it, wise men call him the knower. I am the knower of the field and every body, Arjuna. Genuine knowledge means knowing both the field and its knower. Listen and I will explain the nature of the field, what changes take place in it, who is the knower and what his great powers are. The sages have sung of these truths in the sacred hymns and in many powerful and well-argued reasonings about God. The five elements the eye sense the understanding the ten senses the mind the unmanifest and the five domains of the senses desire and aversion pleasure and pain consciousness will all these components make up the field with its various changes humility patience sincerity non-violence uprightness purity devotion to one's spiritual teacher constancy self-control dispassion towards objects of the senses freedom from the eye sense insight into the evils of birth sickness old age and death detachment absence of clinging to son wife family and home an unshakable equanimity in good fortune or in bad now i would say absence to clinging to son wife family and home is once again Not advocating carelessness or recklessness or abandonment, but rather controlling, manipulating. It's encouraging us to break free from obsessing, from trying to objectify things and people, and even concepts of things and people, and open to change and alternative possibilities of arrangements of things and I'm not that That means something different to everybody that could mean maybe you spend less time with someone because you have to go work in another country to support them for another person that could mean taking a lot of space because there's so much conflict in the house there's a lot of ways that can look and you can get all kinds of creativity with what that can mean but stripping ourselves of our concept that we are imposing upon the outside world especially our family because there's such an intense emotional fixation on those things and they remain outside of us krishna says an unwavering devotion to me above all things an intense love of solitude distaste for involvement in worldly affairs i like this one a lot have it underlined intense love of solitude I have a book in my house called the wisdom of alpacas <laughs> pictures of funny alpacas and good quotes of wisdom one of them is by aldous huxley and says something like the more powerful and unique and uh authentic a mind the more it's love for the religion of solitude and while i dabble in many things and community and people and traditions and so on and so forth there's something extraordinarily resonant just about the practice of finding yourself in a space of solitude and to consciously on a day-to-day basis put yourself in a state of solitude and obviously there's loneliness and solitude loneliness is a inner state of negativity because you are physically alone solitude is like a state of rejoice and philosophical spiritual death depth and exploring and creativity can open up and connection to nature and one's own inner voice and inner vision and to lose that connection specifically because of worldly affairs i can just say for myself is feels like a failure and feels like the onset of sickness of Getting sucked into conformity and manipulation by others. And fundamentally, that's getting sucked into my idea of what it means to be in a conformist mentality, but also what it means to uh, manipulate one's own self because we allow others to do things to us, to guide us in misdirection and that's why it's important to embrace mentality of ownership and responsibility and not a victim mentality of someone made me someone this and that like yes sometimes like social pressures and worldly affairs and so on and so forth can be extraordinarily overwhelming but that is our opportunity to rise to a higher capacity of awareness and discipline and clarity about what direction we need to go in and anytime we lose this we need to go into a state of solitude and we'll lose it every single day at some moment i most likely so why we search and seek out solitude consciously daily as a practice persistence in knowing the self and awareness of the goal of knowing all this is called true knowledge which what differs from it is called ignorance Krishna continues, I will teach you what should be known. Knowing it, you are immortal. It is the supreme reality which transcends both being and non being. Its hands and feet are everywhere. Everywhere its eyes, heads, mouths, everywhere its ears. It dwells in all worlds containing all things. Though lacking senses itself, it shines through the working of the senses. Unattached, all sustaining, experiencing the gunas yet above them outside yet within all beings motionless always moving subtle beyond comprehension far yet nearer than near indivisible though it seems divided in separate bodies it is what sustains all things what devours them what creates them it is the light of lights beyond all darkness it is knowledge the object and goal of all knowledge it is seated in the hearts of all beings this in brief is the field knowledge and the object of knowledge a devotee who understands this is ready for my state of being know that both nature and self are equally without beginning and know that nature gives rise to changes in the field and to gunas nature is the cause of any activity in the body the self is the cause of any feelings of pleasure or pain the self abiding in nature experiencing the gunas Its attachment to the gunas causes its birth, in good wombs or evil womb. It is called the witness, the consenter, the sustainer, the enjoyer, the great lord, and also the highest self, the supreme person in this body. He who thus knows the self as separate from nature in the gunas will never be born again, whatever path he may follow. By meditation, some men can see the self others by the yoga of knowledge, others by selfless action. Still others, not seeing, only hear about it in worship. They too cross beyond death, trusting in what they have heard. Whatever exists, Arjuna, animate or inanimate, has come into existence from the union of field and knower. He who sees the great Lord is equally in all beings, deathless when every being dies, that man sees truly. Seeing the great Lord everywhere, he knows beyond doubt that he cannot harm the self by the self, and he reaches the highest goal. He who sees that all actions are performed by nature alone, and thus that the self is not the doer, that man sees truly. As I read this, I feel a lot of this has to do with Arjuna wishing to cleanse himself of the guilt he feels for the role that he has to take on and the gift that Krishna is offering him is the revelation that nature God, self is the one acting not you the doorway to find this revelation is to let go of your selfless action selfish action let go of your selfish action and allow nature and the flow and the divine order of it to move through you and act through you to be a vessel to be a channel and to keep that relationship through your practice of yoga when he sees Krishna says that the myriad beings emanate from the one and have their source in the one. That man gains absolute freedom. This supreme self is beginningless, deathless, and unconfined. Although it inhabits bodies, it neither acts nor is tainted. Just as all present space is too rarefied to be tainted, so the self is untainted by dwelling within a body. Just as the sun by itself illumines the entire world, so the field owner illumines everything in the field. He whose inner eye sees how the knower is distinct from the field and how men are set free from nature arrives at the highest state. It's interesting, makes me think about Ram Dass was saying that we are kind of going back and forth between identifying with our personality and then our soul and we go through cycles throughout the day where we're in one the other and we lose the the soul and then we find ourselves trapped in ego and generally a result resulting in a lot of mental psychological emotional affliction and then reconnecting back to our soul which is why the practice of solitude is highly recommended and then being able to exist in that place but then simultaneously he says if you lose your personality to the soul then you're not really walking in the dance of life which is what the gita is talking about and this is also what joseph campbell is talking about you want to ride on the leopard without being devoured by it it's like shiva's on a surfboard (laughs) or dancing right with several different objects and you know has multiple arms it's like you're kind of like you're in multiple worlds and keeping a balance of these different aspects of who you are. And Adi Ashanti said something like, yeah, you become enlightened, then you still have to deal with all the situation that is in front of you. It's not like you don't have to deal with life anymore. So I think there's like, I mean, just within my own initial introduction to spirituality had this very like escapist kind of perspective that went with it like you just sit in meditation and then you, you go into this place that's transcendental and that's the end <laughs> or something like that and it's no thinking and what's here you know they're, they're not advocating that they're, they're saying very much that like we need to use discernment use our knowledge our faculties to take right action And to remain engaged in order to go beyond the society, the culture, the self, the illusion, and to become free. But just an interesting thing to reflect on, too, because as I was reading this, it kind of made me just think about like the card of the fool in the tarot deck where it's just like, everything is God, and then just falls off a cliff, which is obviously a necessary part of the journey and something that is an archetype for a reason as it is a reflection of a universality of our human journey but also i think that there might be a moment when we perhaps no longer want to fall off a cliff and we can become a little bit more attuned to How to remain in a state of balance and equanimity and not get caught off-center and remain in the dance. But at the same time, if you do fall off the cliff, remembering, you know, not being swayed by good or bad things. Chapter 14, the three gunas. The blessed Lord said, I will teach you further about true knowledge, ultimate knowledge which all the sages have mastered and gone to supreme perfection. Relying on this and attaining a state like mine, they neither are reborn when the world is created, nor grieve when it is dissolved. Nature for me is a womb. In nature I plant my seed, and from this seed of mine bursts forth the origin of all beings." Whatever life-forms Arjuna develop in any womb, nature is their primal womb, and I am their seed-giving father. The three Gunas, born of nature, Sattva, Rajas, and Tamas, bind to the mortal body and deathless embodied self. Of these three, Sattva, untainted, luminous, free from sorrow, binds by means of attachment to knowledge and joy, Arjuna. Rajas is marked by passion, born of craving and attachment. It binds the embodied self to never-ending activity. Interesting in the culture we live in here in the United States, how <laughs> never-ending activity is highly regarded as a virtue. Tamas, Krishna says, Ignorance born, deludes all embodied beings. It binds them, Arjuna, by means of dullness, indolence, and sleep. Consumer culture. Sattva causes attachment to joy, Rajas to action, and Tamas is tamas, obscuring knowledge, attaches beings to dullness. Sattva prevails when it masters Rajas and Tamas both. Rajas or Tamas prevails when it masters the other two. When the light of knowledge shines forth through all the gates of the body, then it is apparent that sattva is the ruling trait. Greed and constant activity, excessive projects, cravings, restlessness. These arise when rajas is the ruling trait. I think this is very much one of the greatest struggles of living in community. Constant activity and excessive projects. Not greed so much, I wouldn't feel that way constant activity and excessive projects i can (laughs) if you ever live in community and you can master those two things i applaud you darkness dullness stagnation indolence confusion torpor inertia these appear when tamas is the ruling trait if a being dies in a state where the quality of sattva prevails he goes to the stainless heaven of those who have seen the truth if he dies when rajas prevails, he is born among those attached to action. If tamas prevails, he is born among the deluded. The fruit of action well done is sattvic and without a stain. But the root of rajas is suffering, in ignorance the fruit of tamas. From sattva knowledge is born, from rajas restlessness and greed. dullness and confusion arrive from tamas and ignorance also men of sattva go upward men of rajas remain in between men of tamas lowest of all sink downward I see men of sattva go upward makes me think about the allegory of the cave of going into what Plato called the world of ideas but also into a state of higher consciousness and awareness and clarity and revelation and If you're fixated on action, you accumulate material wealth and power over others and sexual things and whatever kind of egoic sort of things you would want. You can obtain those things, but you remain on a single plane of consciousness, caught up in your suffering from desire and craving and aversion and fear. And interesting, too, with dopamine, come back to, fear is actually one of the main drivers of dopamine. Fear of the pain and amplification of it can be a motivating force for us to drive ourselves deeper into addiction. So men of Thomas, lowest of all, sink downward, and that is definitely someone uh, obese, watching TV, totally addicted to... kinds of things and you can kind of look at it right like there's like menasattva they go upward it's like they're moving up the kundalini they're going into a higher state of consciousness the higher chakra centers of awareness and revelation rajas it's very much manipura power exerted onto the world it's very caught in those first three we don't reach the level of the heart because we're too caught up in acting and there's aggression So it's interesting, right? We are talking about like Navy SEALs, right? Super rajasic, the most rajasic thing possible. (laughs) David Coggins being the most rajasic thing possible. Yet, uh, and not a a criticism of that, but just as that kind of energy when utilized, if you can channel that kind of force, but with consciousness, then I think you can bring it upwards into a sativic state of awareness. So, when a man sees clearly that there is no doer besides the gunas and knows what exists beyond them, he can enter my state of being, says Krishna. Going beyond the three gunas that arise from the body, freed from the sorrows of birth, old age, and death, he attains the immortal. Arjuna said, How can I recognize the man who has gone beyond the three gunas? What has he done to go beyond them? How does he act? The blessed Lord said, Whatever quality arises, light, activity, delusion, he neither dislikes its presence nor desires it when it is not there. He who is unattached, who is not disturbed by the gunas, who is firmly rooted and knows that only the gunas are acting, who is equally self-contained in pain or pleasure, in happiness or sorrow, who is content with whatever happens, who sees dirt, rocks and gold as equal who is unperturbed amid praise or blame of himself indifferent to honor and to disgrace serene in success and failure impartial to friend and foe unattached to action that man has gone beyond the three gunas and one can easily understand i think at this point why a war was chosen to explain this because Try going out into the world (laughs) and seeing a bunch of dirt, rocks, and gold and go, oh, it's all equal. I'm indifferent to it. Or see what happens when someone spits in your face and then accuses you of all kinds of things or losing thousands of dollars or (laughs) having to hang out with people that are just really vile towards you. So that's why it's a war because there's this aspect of ourself that wants to engage in the lowest denominator of behavior when faced with these tests but to come into this place of awareness and discipline and restraint and patience and resolve and firmness and equanimity and balance perseverance and to resist that aspect of our mind that is very much a war and a struggle an inner struggle that is not easy and is not meant to be easy and no one has that easy and you know it's interesting like you think about someone like Eckhart Tolle or Ramana Maharashi and perhaps some other sages right for them it does kind of seem a little easy when I when I was like, you know, Sri Nisgrata Maharaj, you didn't have to stop smoking cigarettes. He was just like, oh, I just had to say I am enough times and then all of a sudden I'm in heaven. And uh, this comes back to this passage here where he says, a couple pages prior, says, And best of all is surrender, which soon brings peace. It's like, that being said, I, I've, had, I've gone into states of surrender. I was in a sweat lodge one time and I was dying. I just was clawing at the ground and uh probably whimpering and then i couldn't get out was not allowed to get out and then because the heat was so intense but i was not allowed to get out and then something happened where a surrender came over me and all of that inflicted suffering that i thought was externally imposed by the heat suddenly passed and i was just left there like super calm going from this like highly internally rajasic state of like i gotta go i gotta go i gotta get out of (laughs) here like holy god to then a state of surrender and huh, huh, very soft thick for a period of time state of consciousness and that's not something that i think one can necessarily just choose to do because surrender in a lot of ways is the antithesis of doing I think there's a way to like orient ourselves towards it. And I've heard other teachers say requires a lot of work, meaning like literal physical work, a constant exertion to the point where you burn out. And Nirvana, once again, meaning to extinguish, to burn out the passions and to come into a place of, oh, OK, I just give up. I can't win the fight. We all know what this feels like at different moments in our life. There's, that's that's the the beauty of of not getting what you want in life and making mistakes and failing and that's why they say where you stumble there lies your treasure it's that state of surrendering to just what's inside of you okay i have failed i have <laughs> you shall not pass <laughs> but in doing so you come back to what it was that you thought you were looking for or rather, you, you come back to the thing you were always seeking, but maybe you didn't either realize it, or perhaps you were seeking it through the wrong means. And you could talk to many drug and alcohol addicts about this, but also just someone who feels that in order for everything to be okay, in order for everything to be safe, and everything to be harmony and equilibrium and balance in the world and security, we feel we have to accomplish something. And the Bhagavad Gita is saying no that is not the case as is all of these teachings that fundamentally what makes it okay is this inner mastery over ourselves and this conflict of this eternal war and our understanding of yoga and right action in relationship to all of this and that it's through discipline but also through devotion is what he's saying and through through love right because it's very much coming to the heart It's coming to a place of peace and surrender to unity, which is found in the heart, right? And once again, it's not something you can just do. Unfortunately, that's that's sort of like the bad news. You can't just do it. You can try everything you can. (laughs) You know, drive yourself totally mad doing it. And then... All of a sudden maybe someone there's just like a little shift in the environment all of a sudden satori right in the zen tradition huh Huh. there's a state of the mind just it stops but that's not something that we can decide dictate people could probably work their entire lives and never come in contact with this people can take all kinds of psychedelics or medicines or go to all kinds of different teachers and different kinds of traditions and practices and yoga and meditation and devotional chanting and blah 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 and this still could never happen which doesn't undermine all those things because i feel in a certain way these are preparation and they is why there's this conversation in the book about like karma and we are bringing ourselves and you know it's like for instance maybe this is a good way to look at it too like why they say The journey is the destination, not the destination itself, right? Because not being attached to the fruits of our action, we're not seeking to find this state. Although we are, (laughs) we're trying to. But you want to enjoy the process. That's really where I think the that I loved what Joseph Campbell has to say because he puts it in that kind of way, where like you know, find find follow your bliss, right? Which he's taking from Sat Chit and Ananda. Ananda being bliss, and he's saying connect to that because if you do that you get the he says you get like a slow burn if you depending on what you do obviously if your bliss is like wim hof and it's it's not a slow burn it's pretty intense but his was a slow burn you know he locked himself in the woods during the great depression uh and he just read and he through through mythological texts for him he connected to this uh, like this sattvic state of consciousness but it was not an intense rapture like fadrionic teachings or something like that it was more like this gradual slow dawning to open into something and but he's saying that through the we are in a state of like appreciation and gratitude for what we get to do and so if we can find a way to enjoy the process then it doesn't really matter like if it leads to revelation like so as i say like oh you can do all this stuff but it won't lead to revelation I, and people say that all the time I hear lots of people say those sem- sentences in reference to that like oh like yeah that person does all these things but I would say in counter to that and counter to what I just said because the whole thing is kind of a paradoxical mess you would say yeah but uh, I enjoy doing those things i enjoy doing asanas i like running you know i like sitting in a sweat lodge i like sitting in a dharma talk i like reading the Bhagavad gita i just enjoy doing it and just you know through my nature of the enjoyment it is leading to something and at the same time maybe if you enjoy just doing pottery that very well could lead to the same revelation perhaps a more direct and empowered revelation because you don't have all this conceptual mythological cultural baggage to go with it you're just observing the isness and the beingness of the pot and recognizing a unity of consciousness through that and i'm sure there's many people as i've heard many teachers say in different ways that there's many realized beings out there who came to their state of revelation through ordinary activity and discovered to be actually rather ordinary thing That was natural. That was not something that was like a grandiose mystical state, but just the nature of things as they are. And that coming to that state of consciousness was just like, oh, yes, this is obvious. It's been here the whole time, but it's more clear at this moment. Like The sun's been rising since an hour ago, but now I can see the whole sun. And uh, no need to make it into a religion or a teaching or institution or an ashram or any of those things or a ritual it's just they've connected to what they are which has gone beyond the, what they thought they were initially so just different things to think about here krishna says he who faithfully serves me with the yoga of devotion going beyond the three gunas is ready to attain the ultimate freedom For I am the foundation of that birthless, imperishable freedom, the basis of eternal joy and of limitless, perfect joy. So, there they're talking about joy being... Krishna is the foundation for that. So, a little bit different than prior when we were saying how... abstaining from joy i think it was something along those lines but it was more along it was more trying to communicate seemed like excitement abstaining from excitement because here he's the foundation of joy chapter 15 the ultimate person (laughs) the ultimate person (laughs) (laughs) sounds like a tv show man or like one of those reality shows Ninja warrior, ultimate person. The blessed Lord said, This realm of sorrow is the world tree that the sages describe. Its roots above, its branches below, its green leaves, the sacred hymns. Its branches, spreading below and above, are fed by the gunas, and bud into objects of the senses, its roots causing action stretched down. Into the world of men men here on earth cannot see how vast and extensive its form is or where it begins and ends cut down this deep-rooted tree with the sharp-edged axe of detachment then search for the primal person for whom the universe flows find him in the place that one enters and does not return from without arrogance or delusion intent on the self alone serene with desires extinguished released from pleasure and pain from joy and suffering the wise attain that eternal state the sun does not give it light nor the moon nor does any fire those who reach it my highest dwelling are never reborn one fragment of me becoming an eternal soul in the world draws itself the mind and the other five nature born senses when the lord takes on a body relieves it He carries these senses just as the wind carries carries fragrances fragrances from the places where it has been. Presiding over the senses of hearing and sight, of touch, taste, smell, and also of mind, he savors the senses' objects. Whether he leaves or remains, enjoying his contact with the gunas, the deluded see nothing but wise men, see him with their inner eye. True men of yoga, striving, see him within themselves, but men without self control, however they strive, they do not see him. The brilliance of the moon of fire, the brilliance that flames from the sun to illumine the entire world, this brilliance is mine. Entering the earth, I support all beings by my life giving power. Becoming the nectar filled moonlight, I cause plants and herbs to thrive. I am the vital fire in the bellies of all men, joined with the breath as it flows. I digest the various kinds of food. I dwell deep in the hearts of all beings. I am the source of memory and knowledge, the author of all scripture, their wisdom, their goal. In this world there are two persons, the transient and the eternal. All beings are transient as bodies, but eternal within the self. Yet beyond these two is the ultimate person, the highest self, the immutable Lord who, entering the universe, brings it to life. I am beyond the transient and am higher than the eternal. Therefore, scriptures and world would call me the ultimate person. Whoever clear-minded knows me as the ultimate person knows all that is truly worth knowing, and he loves me with all of his heart. Thus, Arjuna, I have taught you this most secret doctrine. Whoever learns it is wise and has done all that there is to do. Chapter 16, Divine Traits and Demonic Traits Krishna says, Fearlessness, purity of heart, persistence in the yoga of knowledge, generosity, self-control, non-violence, gentleness, candor. Integrity, disengagement, joy in the study of the scriptures, compassion for all beings, modesty, patience, a tranquil mind. Here again, having on some level contradiction. Joy in the study of scriptures. And well, we could say for the learned men there's no need for a scripture of any kind, it's a waste of time. However, here perhaps we're saying joy in the study of scriptures, that simply to be enmeshed in the language, in the imagery, the poetry, the meditation of Jana Yoga, study of knowledge, invokes joy, which can be affiliated with equanimity. So there's a yoga of study that sounds to me like what's being emphasized. So carries on with the traits krishna says dignity kindness courage a benevolent loving heart these are the qualities of men born with divine traits arjuna hypocrisy insolence anger cruelty ignorance conceit these arjuna are the qualities of men with demonic traits the divine traits lead to freedom the demonic to suffering and bondage And fascinating how often we oftentimes can feel so righteous and justified in our anger and our conceitedness, disregarding our own hypocrisy. Madama Pada says, hypocrisy lives in you. And all of these traits live in all of us. This is what we're gathering. This is why this book has been sustained for thousands of years. Because it's speaking to something that everyone can relate to. That this is in all of us. The capacity to be cruel is in all of us. And this comes back to this premise as I was talking about in... The first episode of this series in the Bhagavad Gita, we are talking about uh, Victor Frankl's time in Auschwitz and how prison guards, ordinary normal people, can inflict horrendous violence against others but then go home and be totally considered as normal people. And there was a prison study done at Stanford by Philip Zimbardo, a very interesting name, I studied it in high school, I remember it's still impacted me because of the teaching of this they're trying to understand the psychology of people such as nazi guards how could people do this kind of thing very famous study you've probably heard of it and they there's video footage of it it's very dark they had participants in a study knowing it was a study pretend to be in a jail and it went on for six months or something like that i believe they had to shut it down because it got so uh sadistic but people pretending to be inmates and people pretending to be guards. And essentially what happened was the people pretending to be guards when given tremendous power without check and authority turned into monsters. And I'm I still can see it. I have a very, very photographic, almost video tape like memory i could still see the grainy footage of the guy just like screaming and i think he was like beating on the other student these are students at stanford in college these aren't just like uh not that being a student at stanford really means anything but just saying that these weren't like crazy people they picked off the street necessarily these are people that supposedly went through a rigorous academic filtration and were recognized for their prowess psycho- mentally and that kind of thing, intellectually. But the point being that when circumstances are imposed upon us, as my teacher says, when life starts to test you, test your character, it's very common and actually very ordinary to turn into succumbing to these demonic traits and it's not necessarily like oh some, you can't simplify like oh the Nazis, the Germans are immoral people that prison guard people are immoral because what this what this prison study found done by Phillips and Bardo I think in the 60s or 70s what they discovered was that when people are put in positions of unchecked authority and power and given dominion over others really horrific unconscious ignorant dark things can come out and it's almost like the uh the floodgates to mordor to the unconscious right are given free reign to just unleash themselves upon others and why it's extraordinarily important that we are consistently checking ourselves through our relations not just to humans but to The earth, to nature, to addictions, to substance use, to food, to exercise. To check ourselves in all kinds of ways as to how are we giving credence to things. And I remember also, too, you know, Life of Pi, the film, uh, which is also a book. I read the book many, uh, many years ago and I can't recall it as well as I can recall the film. But that's very much, I feel... A study on the Bhagavad Gita in a lot of ways, although the main character t- is multifaceted in his religious outtake, meaning he's a Christian, a Muslim, and a Hindu, he says. And if you recall, what happens is they're trying to get to another country, America, and they crash. And uh, he's le- on a lifeboat with a ferocious tiger. And it, long story short, this tiger, right, is a metaphor for this this thing that's inside of all of us that we have to grapple with constantly and at the very end of you know first he tries to kill it then he realizes he can't do that and you know we can it's a very interesting film where it's not really clear whether how much of this is like is real and how much of this is a metaphor just for how someone views themselves and their moral conduct and their own capacity to unleash violence on others when pressed in circumstances. And it's interesting, Rex, right? at first he wants to kill the tiger and he can't do it. And then he realizes he needs to train the tiger. And there's no way out of it. And not only does he have to train it, he has to feed it. And he's a vegetarian. <laughs> but he has to feed the tiger. And that's a very important lesson that we have to feed our tiger. We watched the film as a community. Our teacher said, make sure you feed your tiger. You know, We have to grapple and acknowledge that this capacity to succumb to our demonic traits is in all of us, every single one of us. And people who are on the spiritual path, it's very easy to delude oneself because you have Tibetan prayer flags around you and you burn incense and you wear nice white clothing and you sing um, kumbaya, whatever, that you think that you are totally... Uh, of moral purity uh, of... <laughs> you understand what I'm trying to say. And it's very important that not only do we humbly acknowledge that we have the capacity to demonic traits as krishna is saying here but also that we provide a healthy connection to that energy and a and a positive creative catharsis towards it whether the catharsis goes in the direction of exercise like martial arts or running or it goes in the direction of uh, spiritual austerity or creative things such as music and art or service but being conscientious that this is where we can drive and connect to our power of these forces in the unconscious these animalistic lower nature forces these really deep and at times disturbing aspects about us if we can connect to those and direct them consciously into a place of transmutation sublimation of the will right that kind of thing to a higher place then we can transcend this demonic aspect of ourselves but the first step is recognizing this is in everybody and not only is in it everybody it's in you and me and our war and our fight as warriors is to embrace these higher qualities that Arjuna is talking about the divine traits and bring shower those upon <laughs> the demonic traits And that chapter, right, of of the revelation of the the destruction of life and the disturbing, you know, the fangs and the teeth and the severed heads and all that. that, He's saying that's in your unconscious. That's you. (laughs) Except that that is part of you. Right. And that's what happens in Life of Pi. They wind up at the island. It's like this heavenly divine island. It's shaped like a person. But at nighttime, it feeds upon all the living beings. And there's this very disturbing revelation that life feeds on life. And that's how it sustains itself. And so after the revelation of this, they return to the human world. Anyways, we continue here. The divine traits lead to freedom the demonic to suffering and bondage but do not be concerned arjuna the traits you have are divine the demonic and the divine are the two kinds of men in this world and you know what i just said there is kind of a sense of like hey just remember you think you're very divine until you until you aren't (laughs) the divine i've told you about now learn about the demonic Demonic men do not realize what should and should not be done. There is no purity of heart, no virtue, no truth inside them. They say that life is an accident caused by sexual desire and the universe has no moral order, no truth, and no God. Clinging to this stupid belief drawn into cruelty and malice, they become lost souls and at last enemies of the whole world. Interesting way to put this. They say life is an accident caused by sexual desire and the universe has no moral order, no God, no truth. Very much materialistic. Objectifying. No inner connection to anything. And lost in, as they say here, arrogance. Krishna continues, driven by insatiable lusts, drunk on the arrogance of power hypocritical deluded their actions foul with self-seeking tormented by a vast anxiety that continues until their death conceived that the gratification of desire is life's sole aim and so this is interesting because in a lot of ways i was just listening to this good podcast by an author of a book called dopamine nation a neuroscientist she's talking to rich roll who I like a lot as a recovering addict, but also a ultra marathon runner and vegan and, you know, has a lot of good things to talk about. And they're talking about how we're hardwired biologically to seek pleasure and avoid pain. And this is our biology. So I think this is this is something that a lot of people in history have become victims of religious texts because religious texts seem to make our biology seem like a moral failure or to look down upon it in a lot of ways. I mean it and it's hard in a certain sense not to sense that the author here is kind of pushing that forward. I don't mean the person doing the translation, I just mean whoever wrote the Bhagavad Gita, who whoever groups of people wrote it, whatever. Where they're saying here that uh, these people have stupid beliefs. They're drunk on arrogance of power. You know, it has a certain connotation to it. Which is to drive the point across. But at the same time, I think it's important for us to come to a peaceful acceptance that... Yeah, we are driven to seek pleasure and avoid pain. As we continue bound by a hundred shackles of hope enslaved by their greed they squander their time dishonestly piling up mountains of wealth today i got this desire and tomorrow i will get the next one all these riches are mine and soon i will have even more already i have killed these enemies and soon i will kill the rest i am the lord the enjoyer successful happy and strong Noble and rich and famous, who on earth is my equal? I will worship, give alms and rejoice, thus think these ignorant fools. Bewildered by endless thinking, entangled in the net of delusion, Addicted to desire, they plunge into the foulest of hells. Self-centered, stubborn, filled with all the insolence of wealth, They grow through the outward forms of worship, but their hearts are elsewhere. This is an important teaching. They go through the outward forms of worship, but their hearts are elsewhere. So, as you go through any practice, any spiritual discipline, any discipline, any relationship, any thing that you do in life, what is where is your awareness focused at is it focused in desire or is your heart truly engaged with the practice this is something my teacher talks a lot about saying that we are a heart-centered community tradition and very much it's about the engagement of the heart and care So that's that that's why Krishna is saying those who come to me from that approach of care and a connection to the heart will come to me, no matter what their sins are. There's something, there's a there's a transmutation, a transformation in the heart that can welcome in and embrace the most vile and pungent, (laughs) putrid. Painful, difficult, bitter circumstances, substances, endeavors, mistakes, and love heals all, right? The power of love to heal the world. So where is your heart at? Whatever you do, you must do with love. Believe my elder passed away last year, Tata Pedro said something like that. Whatever you do, always do it with love. Clinging to the eye sense, to power, to arrogance, lust, and rage. <laughs> they hate me, denying my presence in their own and in others' bodies. I'm laughing because it's just. It. I mean, there's a lot of people that are caught in this predicament, right? But it's just kind of, just when it's contextualized, this it's just an outrageous idea of of like cultivating these characteristics in ourselves. And for the record, I find myself. Succumbing to all kinds of things at all kinds of moments. Becoming really angry and then self-righteous in my anger and then arrogant in all kinds of ways. So, you know, it's also funny. <laughs> Through all the cycles of birth and death, I hurl these depraved, cruel, and hate-filled men into demonic wombs. Trapped in demonic wombs, deluded in birth after birth, they never reach me, Arjuna, but sink to the lowest state. This is the soul-destroying threefold entrance to hell. Desire, anger, and greed. Every man should avoid them. The man who refuses to enter these three gates into darkness does what is best for himself and attains the ultimate goal. But the man who rejects the scriptures, chasing his own desires, cannot attain the goal of true joy or true success. Therefore, guided by the scriptures, know what to do and what not to do. First, understand their injunctions and then act uprightly in the world. And, okay, so here, you must know what to do and what not to do by the scriptures. They are important. And it's funny because I don't know if it was in the beginning of this podcast because I've had to come back to this podcast several times to finish it or if it was a prior one. But we were talking about that story of the dragon. You have to slay the dragon thou shalt, meaning moral and ethical conduct constructed by cultural conditioning imposed by somebody else. Coming, of course, from a, the books Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which is very much about uh, somebody... And it's an interesting book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, because it kind of on some level some it could be argued to have some influence for the rise of Nazism because you have the Ubermensch, like the ultimate Superman person who takes the will to power and imposes it upon the world because these foolish people who believe in religion and culturally conditioned moral norms are to be dominated essentially by the person who understands their own inner truth. So that's an interesting thing to kind of grapple with. But at the same time, the scripture here in the Bhagavad Gita is telling you, you don't need to listen to the scripture. So it's telling you to do both things. And that's what I think makes this a particularly profound and deeply inspiring and important text because it's simultaneously telling you very clearly guided by the scriptures know what to do and what not to do and then later on it says for the person who's learned the scripture is worthless okay so when these teachings come forth I feel it's very much saying depending on what state of consciousness you are in depending if you are a monk or a layperson, an ascetic, a warrior, there is a teaching for you that maybe is specific towards your role in the play. And if you are in a different position, you'll maybe you won't even you'll hear that teaching, but will you really absorb and act upon it? You might not you might not really grasp what the person is trying to say, but here very clearly, know what to do and what not to do. Act uprightly in the world. And that sense of act uprightly in the world, this is very much a constant meditation on our character. How do we show up? Are we showing up and empowering demonic forces in ourselves? Are we showing up and empowering divine forces within ourselves? Are we Which forces are we empowering and inspiring in others? Many things to meditate on while we always come back to Scripture to guide us, even when we think that we know. Chapter 17, Three Kinds of Faith. Arjuna said, There are men who worship with faith, and yet who reject the scriptures. What guna guna prevails in them, Lord? Sattva, Rajas, or Tamas. The Blessed Lord said, There are three kinds of faith in men. Each kind ruled by the guna, inherent in the nature of the man. Listen as I explain this. every man's faith conforms with his inborn nature arjuna faith is a person's core whatever his faith is he is Sattvic men worship the gods rajasic demigods and demons tamasic the hordes of dark spirits and the ghosts of the dead men who mortify their flesh in ways not sanctioned by the scriptures who are trapped in their sense of eye are driven by warped desires in their folly torturing the parts that compose the body and thus torturing me in the body know that their aim is demonic to me this seems like it's a condemnation of some of the extreme practices done by sadhus in India there are three kinds of foods as well and worship control and charity also divide into three kinds here are the distinctions among them foods that are sophic are drawn to promote vitality health pleasure strength and long life and are fresh firm succulent and tasty foods that please the rajasic bitter or salty or sour hot or harsh or pungent cause pain disease and discomfort The preferred foods of the tamasic are stale, overcooked, tasteless, contaminated, impure, filthy, putrid, and rotten. I think listening to this we can see clearly consumer culture is the epitome of a tamasic culture. Krishna says, Worship that is offered according to scripture for the sake of the worship, without any thought of reward, this kind of worship is sattvic. Rajasic worship, Arjuna, is offered out of desire for the good that it will result in, or in order to gain respect. And I think about this sometimes, like when you are doing service work or community service work, and how oh, karma yoga, you can caught up in. Oh, well, there is a moment where you think, Oh, I want, I want to be acknowledged for this. I want people to see that I am working really hard for them. <laughs> and then you have to really think about, okay. Your actions are creating some good in the world just from a simplistic sense of like you're helping people. Let's not overanalyze that any farther. But your inner state is is dil- uh, very muddy and clogged up with something. And th- what I found through the practice is that if you stick with it with enough effort and consistency and persistence, there's a moment where you will eventually drop that story, especially if you're conscious of it. It's very funny when you start to go, huh, wow, look at how good I am helping these people. I hope that they see all the work that I just did for them.
1: <laughs> and
0: you have to really wonder of what value was that. Just Questions. Worship is tamasic when it is faithless, contrary to scripture, with no food offered, no texts recited, no payment to the priest. Honoring the gods, the priests, the teachers and sages, purity, nonviolence, chastity, uprightness, all this is control of the body. Speaking the truth with kindness, honesty that causes no pain and risk Itation of scripture. This is control of speech. I personally cannot claim mastery of control of speech. <laughs> Speaking the truth with kindness. That's an interesting statement. You know, because... I always like uh, how Cornell West framed... Talked about black prophetic fires, speaking about people like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, and saying how you know these are people that they didn't go out there and they weren't trying to uh, appease the masses. They were they were trying to like s- stir shit up. They were trying to like shake up the the system. And I think about Christ who. <laughs> The guys were selling money in the temple, and I believe he just punches them in the face and breaks a bunch of their stuff. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend that necessarily, but uh, we have to kind of think about this and understand that, you know, honesty that causes no pain. I mean, pain with children. I said it not too long ago on this on this episode that uh the truth is insulting and it should be insulting and it's also should be disturbing <laughs> so yeah there's i i have i per i have a personal hesitation to accept this one and which is also you know this is partially the uh Stephen mitchell's interpretation because we're also reading the language he puts forth because speaking the truth with kindness, there's a lot of times where that is not right action. That is idiot compassion. And that's exactly what it is it's idiot compassion. Trying not to make someone feel bad when they're doing something dangerous to themselves or others and going down the wrong road. It's much more compassionate to get in someone's face with something that might seem a little bit out of place might seem a little bit quote-unquote not spiritual that might be a much more spiritual compassionate heart-centered thing to do than to say it merely from a place of kindness that being said this is something that there should be a really fierce Meditation and focus around the speech and how we communicate to each other because it's not just the language we use, but it's the tonality in our voice. And being that I'm an Aries and I have a Mercury in Aries, uh, I have personally experienced many situations where not being conscientious of my speech and the emotional charge behind it, even if it's not personally directed intentionally at the person I'm speaking to has resulted in all kinds of chaotic situations. And I think this is something virtually anyone can relate to. And it is something that we have to guard fiercely, I would say. it had to it, With fierceness, you have to guard that kind of a thing because the power of our words and speech can open doors into things that are can be very damaging towards people so yes speaking the truth with kindness I I make a really concerted effort to do that and I try to be honest with people in a way that won't actually upset their ego I, I I like what the Tao Te Ching says you know it's like let people leave people alone let them be you know and I talk on this podcast and I think I try to be pretty honest about what I have to say but at the same time I also am conscientious of how I say things on here because What are we putting forth in the world? How are we influencing other people with our words and our actions? And it's important to be as honest and authentic as possible. But to be very conscientious that sometimes you say something to somebody and that damages them, the relationship, you and everyone around in all kinds of ways. And maybe for you, you didn't realize it. And only years later, you realize how damaging it was to say that. And, you know, this is control of speech. I would absolutely affirm that is a, a virtue. At the same time, there's moments where if we are being truly heart-centered, compassionate, and connected to the right action of the moment, that speaking and getting in someone's face with a little intensity, sometimes a lot of intensity, is the only way to go about it. And it's the only effective way to do something serenity gentleness silence benevolence self-restraint purity of being compassion this is control of the mind and focus here on silence as we talk about speech this is something that as a community we have practiced a lot is in the work of practicing our own inner silence in order to promote and create harmony not only outside in the world with difficult circumstances that arise in work and relations and community but also within our own inner selves and why uh, silence is a highly revered value in all traditions and vipassana you stay in silence as for the entire time you are in meditation retreat so that you are not losing focus of your inner centeredness and your inner work practice of equanimity over the sensations that arise on the mind and not using social interaction as a way to avoid looking at oneself so long periods of silence are highly recommended and one of the most fascinating things to do is to be around a group of people that you talk to all the time and have personal relationships with and consciously choose to take a day of silence it's very strange it's very illuminating and I found that that kind of practice can resolve some things that nothing else will emotional tendencies aspects towards conformity wanting to people please or find acceptance inauthentic patterns connected to abuse whether self-inflicted or coming from other sources keeping silence and restraining oneself where you are essentially as they say you gain the power of the demon that you swallow so swallowing up aspects of the unconscious that drive the personality gaining power over yourself so silence is a very healthy practice and be here now ram Dass book at the end they recommend you know silence often when these three levels of control are practiced with faith and diligence and with no desire for results such control is called sattvic rajasic control by its nature wavering and unstable is performed out of pride or to gain respect admiration and honor Which sounds like a very normal societal action, right? But we're seeking the transcendental here. So control is called tamasic, when used by deluded men to mortify their flesh or to gain the power to cause harm to others. Charity given to the worthy without any expectations for the sake of the act itself, this kind of charity is sattvic. Rajasic charity is given half-heartedly with the thought of securing some favor in return or to gain spiritual merit. Charity is called tamasic when given to the undeserving at the wrong time and wrong place. Grudgingly without respect. Om Tat Sat These words stand for the liberated mind by which priests, scriptures, and rituals were appointed in ancient times. Therefore, the word Om is always chanted by those who expound the scriptures, to begin an act of worship, control, or charity. Tat, which means that, the Absolute, is chanted by seekers of freedom whenever they perform right actions with no concern for results. The third word, sat, has the sense of reality, goodness. Thus, sat is used to denote any praiseworthy action. Maturity of worship or control of charity is also called sat, as is all unselfish action that leads to any of the three. But worship, control, or charity offered without faith, Arjuna, is called asat. Unreal and is worthless in this world or in the next. Chapter 18. Freedom Through Renunciation Arjuna said, Teach me this lesson, Krishna, what it means to renounce, what it means to relinquish, and the difference between the two. The blessed Lord said, To give up desire-bound actions is what is meant by renouncing. To give up the results of all actions is what the wise call to relinquish. Some sages that all action is tainted and should be relinquished. Others permit only acts of worship, control, and charity. Here is the truth. These acts of worship, control and charity purify the heart, and therefore should not be relinquished but performed. But even the most praiseworthy acts should be done with complete non attachment. And with no concern for results, this is my final judgment. Relinquishment is of three kinds. When any obligatory action is relinquished because of delusive thinking, that is tamasic. When a man relinquishes action because it is hard or painful, that relinquishment is rajasic, and it cannot guide him toward freedom. So, kind of like escapism and laziness or apathy indifference lack of discipline but when out of duty a man performs an obligatory action relinquishing all results the relinquishment is called sattvic the man who is able to relinquish beyond doubt does not avoid unpleasant actions Nor is he attached to the actions that are pleasant. An embodied being can never relinquish actions completely. To relinquish the results of actions is all that can be required. For those who cling to it, action has three results when they die. Desired, undesired, and mixed. But for those who renounce, it has none. To me, this is a teaching of Pushing aside in a way that idea that there's good karma and there's bad karma that's a very rajasic way of perceiving karma now i will teach you the five elements that must be present for an action to be accomplished as philosophers have declared the physical body the agent the various organs of sense the various kinds of behavior and divine providence as fifth In whatever action a man takes with his body, his speech, or his mind, whether it is right or wrong, these five things must be present. Since this is so, when a man of limited understanding sees himself as a sole agent, he is not seeing the truth. A man who is free from the eye sense and is pure, even if he kills these warriors, does not kill, nor is he bound by his actions." Knowledge, the known, and the knower are the three things that motivate action. Instrument, action, and agent are the three components of action. Knowledge, action, and agent are three kinds, according to the guna, that prevails in each one. Listen, and I will explain these distinctions. Knowledge that sees in all things a single, imperishable being, undivided among the divided. This kind of knowledge is sattvic. Rajasic knowledge perceives a multiplicity of beings, each one existing by itself, separate from all the others. Knowledge is called tamasic when it clings to one thing as if it were the whole, and has no concern for the true cause and essence of things. Obligatory action performed without any craving or aversion by a man attached to results. This kind of action is sattvic. Rajasic action is performed with the wish to satisfy desires with a thought, I am doing this, and with an excessive effort. Action is tamasic when it begins in delusion, with no concern that it may cause harm to oneself or others. An agent who is free from attachment and the eye sense courageous, steadfast, unmoved by success or failure. This kind of agent is sattvic. A rajasic agent is impulsive, seeks to obtain results, (laughs) is greedy, violent, impure, and buffeted by joy and sorrow. An agent is called tamasic when he is undisciplined, stupid, stubborn, mean, deceitful, lazy, and easily depressed. Listen as I describe the three kinds of understanding and the three kinds of will according to the guna that prevails in each. The understanding that knows what to do and what not to do. Safety and danger, bondage and liberation is sattvic. Brajasic understanding fails to know right from wrong when from when not to act what what should from what should not be done understanding is tamasic when thickly covered in darkness it imagines the wrong is right and sees the world upside down (laughs) the unswerving will that controls the functions of mind breath and senses by the practice of meditation this kind of will is sattvic The rajasic will is attached to duty, sensual pleasures, power, and wealth, with anxiety and a constant desire for results. That will is called tamasic, by which a stupid man keeps clinging to grief and fear, to torpor, depression, and conceit. Now, Arjuna, I will tell you about the three kinds of happiness. The happiness which comes from a long practice which leads to the end of suffering which at first is like poison but at last like nectar this kind of happiness arising from the serenity of one's own mind is called sattvic which at first is like poison but at last like nectar so embracing the difficult embracing the challenge embracing the struggle persevering through the obstacles Setting the mentality and the mindset that it's going to be bitter to taste at first. It might make you nauseous. You might hate it in everything it feels like. It might freeze you to the bones and break you in every possible way. And you'll question it the whole way through. But then somehow at last, like nectar, it arises. Serenity from one's own mind. That is an important teaching. At first is like poison. So, instant gratification is not your friend. Hard work and discipline, and perseverance and patience, these are the appropriate tools to take out for this job. Rajasic happiness comes from contact between the senses and their objects. And is at first like nectar, but at last like poison. And I think simply put, right, as the Buddha said, you get what you don't want, and even if you do get what you do want, it will go away and you will be left without it. And this is very much, once again, coming back to how dopamine functions in the brain which drives motivation, desire, movement, pleasure. And the same simple principle that you get something pleasurable, spike in dopamine, the brain is designed to sustain an equilibrium and homeostasis. And so what happens is you receive an equal and opposite reaction of pain, neurologically speaking, in the body and the brain. So at first something is there, but then you are subjected to the inversion of it this is neurologically speaking but this is also simple buddhist wisdom hindu wisdom law of nature as sn goenka would say nothing to do with any religion at all law of nature you don't you get things you want and then they go away and then you are upset because they are gone (laughs) So happiness is called tamasic when it is self-deluding from beginning to end and arises from sleep, indolence, and dullness. I like this one because it makes me laugh. It's self-deluding from beginning to end. (laughs) There's never even a moment of enjoyment. The whole thing was just completely diluted. (laughs) (laughs) Ay, No being on earth, Arjuna are among the belief gods in heavens is free from the conditioning of these nature-born gunas. Nature-born. This is life as it is. It's inescapable, no matter how blissed out and, and divine you are. The duties of priests, of warriors, of laborers, and of servants are apportioned according to their gunas that arise from their inborn nature serenity control austerity uprightness purity patience knowledge piety and judgment are the natural duties of priests boldness the ability to lead large heartedness courage in battle energy stamina and strength are the natural duties of warriors farming cow herding and trade are the natural duties of laborers serving the needs of others is a natural duty of servants interesting i feel on a personal level i've been in i've been in the i've first i was working on a farm today i was helping build a greenhouse so i know what it's like to be a laborer natural duties of warriors I, from playing contact sports, football, lacrosse, wrestling, into college, being recruited into college, playing lacrosse specifically, uh, not combat, but understanding leading groups of people into violent confrontation with others. I I can relate to that. And then also here, uh, being a priest. I'm not a priest. (laughs) that would be a funny priest but being in the role of someone facilitating a meditation a a healing work for somebody I've done this many times and it's I feel beneficial to put on many hats and that there's something educational to embrace each guna with something that it has to offer and to transcend like i don't know i'm just a servant or no i'm i'm a priest i'm too good for that or <laughs> like that's below me right or you know i'm a warrior i'm too tough to be peaceful and compassionate there's there's a number of uh ways we get caught into social roles and so this is one thing that's very beneficial about community you can go from being in the role of a priest facilitating a meditation or yoga class or something along those lines, some sort of ceremony of healing and to invoke peace. But then you can go into the position of being working on a farm to being a warrior and dealing with the politics of the community and having to get in someone's face because of the direction they're trying to take something in and having to learn to step into each guna consciously And understand the character of it and how to direct it for the benefit of what's happening in the moment that's an interesting meditation I've heard my teacher talk a lot about this so understanding how to use the guna perhaps as a costume to better be in service Krishna continues content with his natural duty each one achieves success listen now I will tell you how this success can be found A man finds success by worshiping with his own actions, the one for whom all actions arise, and by whom the world is pervaded. It is better to do your own duty badly than to perfectly do another's. This is the second time that statement has been in this book, so it's obviously a very important thing. I commented on it quite a bit prior, so I won't do that much more. But just simply bringing attention that there's a role for each one of us to... to enact in this life or in the day or in the moment and if we get too caught up in social conditioning conformity people pleasing then we are violating the law of nature and our, it's important that we are on our path and not somebody else's no one should relinquish his duty even though it is flawed uh uh-huh all actions are enveloped by flaws as fire is enveloped by smoke character flaws and so on and so forth this is what makes us human this isn't we're not damaged or broken and that was you know i was listening to this podcast like i said it was ritual and this woman is a neuroscientist and there's a lot of language used in uh addiction community recovery support groups and people in healing works where uh, like I'm broken I'm damaged or there's something wrong with me and so on and so forth or I could have done better I mean artists are classic examples of that right there it's never perfect and right here no one should relinquish this duty even though it is flawed all actions are enveloped by flaws all of them right judge not unless you be judged first who is without sin? Cast the first stone. Flaws and it's in everything and everyone and that's not something you can escape or fix. or Only by complete acceptance of it and participation within it can then be uh, redeemed. So the redemption is the acceptance of it. So when we get caught up in these belief systems or head trips about, oh yeah, my character like talking poorly about oneself, putting oneself down for being flawed, for being natural, for being human, for being a reflection of life itself, I think there's something that we are missing. And of course, I think I've done it multiple times on this podcast saying, I you know I've done this and I've done that. We right but at the same time more we can understand they're like yeah okay we are all flawed there's expressions and admittance of honesty and humility which perhaps you could argue in addiction healing support groups is like a a way to invoke empowerment being real with oneself but then i think there is also another moment where it becomes Another form of non-acceptance of self, of other, of the moment, of life, of God, and more ego. So that's a constant interesting meditation about how are we putting ourselves down from a place of just being real and checking it? Or is it just a, a way of us not accepting the fact that we are a little crazy? And so is everybody else. And we do some crazy stuff. And like, it's okay. Chill. It's all good. Krishna continues. Self-mastered with mind unattached at all times, beyond desire. One attains through renunciation the supreme freedom from action. Learn from me briefly, Arjuna, that when a man gains success, he also gains perfect freedom. The ultimate state of knowledge with a purified understanding fully mastering himself relinquishing all sense objects released from aversion and craving solitary eating lightly controlling speech mind and body absorbed in deep meditation at all times calm impartial free from the eye and mind from aggression and arrogance, greed, desire, and anger. He is fit for the absolute state of freedom. Serene, in this state of freedom, beyond desire and sorrow, seeing all beings as equal, he attains true devotion of me. Another mentioning of this sense of seeing all beings as equal, equality, equality, treating seeing experiencing life as equal he says again and again krishna continues by devotion he comes to realize the meaning of my infinite vastness when he knows who i truly am he instantly enters my being relying on me in his actions and performing them for my sake he reaches by my great kindness the eternal unchanging place Give up all actions to me. Love me above all others. Steadfastly keep your mind focused on me alone. Focused on me at all times, you will overcome all obstructions. But if you persist in clinging to the I sense, then you are lost. And even if clinging to the I sense, you say that you will not fight, Your intention will be in vain. Nature will compel you to act. It's kind of like a situation you find yourself in where I'm peaceful, I'm meditative, I'm on a vision quest, I'm meditating. And then you have a mosquito coming in your ear and you just instantly have to hit it. (laughs) Nature will compel you to act. Because nature is not interested in respecting your superficial, constructed spiritual boundaries and ethical boundaries. Nature will get in your face. And this is another reason why I was listening to people have been in combat situations. Because even though they had chosen... In which case, I mean, you can read other things like All Quiet on the Western Front where someone's drafted. And there's other books by people who find themselves unwillingly desired, not seeking it, combat situations. And it doesn't really matter what you have to say or believe or your thoughts about it or anything along those lines. Nature will compel you to act. How will you act? Will you act with kindness, compassion, forgiveness, serenity, unattachment? If you are being forced into a position where you cannot back down, are you able to at least act without the I sense, without clinging to the results of the action are you able to empty yourself to allow yourself to become a conduit for the divine to interact with itself through you i don't think that killing mosquitoes is necessarily doing that but <laughs> it's just something perhaps relatable we all can understand what it's like to be i'm meditating and then all of a sudden the mosquito gets up in your ear or or i mean you have a tick that's on you right That might be even a more understandable one. Okay, that thing has a disease that can kill you. Where I live in upstate New York, that is a very real thing. (laughs) Continuing, Krishna says, That thing in you, that thing in your delusion, you wish not to do, you will do. Even against your will, since your own karma binds you. That's powerful, right? You wish not to do it, you will do it. Even against your will. Since your own karma binds you, life's circumstances are imposing themselves upon you. The stress of the situation, there's nothing you can do but act in this way. You have to fight. There is no other option. And it is terrible and disturbing and terrifying. One really feels that he is talking to someone who may actually be in a like external war not just this poetic kind of metaphor and providing karma life circumstances are forcing you into the situation and there are moments where we are all forced into situations and we have to act The Lord dwells deep in the heart of all beings by his wondrous power, making them all revolve like puppets on a carousel. Powerful imagery, right? Puppets on a carousel. If you can hold that meditation and still act in the world, then what Krishna is proposing to Arjuna here is a way to be in the world but not of it as jesus says krishna says devoted to him arjuna take refuge in him alone by his kindness you will attain the state of imperishable peace thus i have taught you the secret of secrets the utmost knowledge meditate deeply upon it then act as you think best Now listen to my final words, the deepest secret of all. I am speaking for your own welfare, since you are precious to me. If you focus your mind on me, and revere me with all your heart, you will surely come to me. This I promise, because I love you. Relinquishing all your duties, take refuge in me alone. Do not fear. I will free you from the evils of birth and death. These teachings must not be spoken to men without self-control or piety or to men whose hearts are closed to my words. He who teaches this primal secret to those who love me has acted with the greatest love and will come to me beyond doubt. No one can do me a service that is more devoted than this and no one on earth is more precious to me than he is whoever earnestly studies this sacred discourse of ours i consider that he has worshiped and loved me with the yoga of knowledge (laughs) see i think that's beautiful right there whoever earnestly studies this sacred discourse of ours i consider that he has worshiped and loved me with the yoga of knowledge so if you have made it this far on my podcast You have loved Krishna with the yoga of knowledge, I hope. Even the man who hears it with faith and an open mind, he also released will go to the joyous heavens of the pure. Have you truly heard me, Arjuna? Has my teaching entered your heart? Have my words now driven away your ignorance and delusion? Arjuna says, Krishna, I see the truth now by your immeasurable kindness. I have no more doubts. doubts. I will act according to your command. Sanjaya said, O king, as I heard this wondrous discourse between Lord Krishna and Arjuna, the man of great soul, the hair stood up on my flesh. By the poet Vyasa's kindness, I heard this most secret doctrine directly from the mighty Lord of Yoga, Krishna himself. O King, the more I remember this wondrous and holy discourse between the Lord and Arjuna, the more I shudder with joy. And as often as I remember the Lord's vast wondrous form, each time I am astonished, each time I shudder with joy. Where Krishna is, Lord of Yoga, and Arjuna the Archer, there surely, I think, is splendor and virtue and spiritual wealth. The Bhagavad Gita. And that is the end of it. So I highly recommend this copy of... This translation done by Stephen Mitchell, who also does extremely phenomenal job on the translation of the Tao Te Ching. And it's very easy to read and you can read it very quickly. And what I like about it, you can open it up and just look at a single passage and and the power of what the overall message comes through almost on each page another one of these books, like the Tao Tai Ching, where even if you were completely illiterate and someone told you, or you know, this book contains the secrets of the universe and God and you're illiterate, but you open it up and you were just to look at it and the brevity, the shortness and the simplicity of it and the aesthetic of the way that it's written and you would say uh-huh <laughs> it, the the thing is almost visually a trend as an expression of what it's trying to bring forth it's because it, it's so it's brief right i talk for a long time because i haven't mastered silence but this is a book that's good to consistently come back to as often as you can And to constantly meditate upon the teachings derived from it and to incorporate them into a daily practice as much as possible we as a community try to do this and it's something that you can do on an individual level i think it's extremely effective if you really start to study what's being expressed the power of mindset mentality our attitude about what is happening in the world and our participation in it where do we have control where do we need to surrender what kind of an attitude can we cultivate to invoke these divine qualities in ourselves and others and to approach life from this perspective of a warrior and to not back down and to not succumb to these lower forces within us and to understand that this is a righteous war that we have been called to to help bring peace and more understanding and healing and presence and connection and compassion to the world and Regardless of the circumstances, there's always an opportunity for deeper levels of revelation and empowerment and guidance. All that being said, the wonderful thing about this text is that it stands alone without anyone needing to say too much about it. As I said in the beginning, I chose to do so because Offering my thoughts about things as if I'm teaching allows me to understand life a little bit more closely. So, if you have the opportunity to get an audiobook and just listen to the Gita without anyone talking over it, I highly recommend doing that as well. Thank you for listening. May you remain unattached to the fruits of your action. And turn toward God.